Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining with us for this week's teaching. And as we begin, I just want to take a moment to let you know a few of the ways that you can connect with our community beyond this podcast. So first of all, I want to invite you, as always, to visit southviewchurch.com viewpoint. There you'll find a collection of different resources and upcoming events and ministries to help draw us into the life of our community, both on-site and online. And towards that end, if you are new to our digital space, we would love to connect with you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of said viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube, where we share additional fragments from our weekly teachings, art from our community, midweek prayers, community updates, and more. I know that that's a lot of different options. The bottom line is that we just want to use the tools at our fingertips to create connections with one another, regardless of where or how we are gathered. And above all, may your hearts be open and expectant, because wherever you are and however you are listening, God is here, and Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying into his presence. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. And as we come to today's teaching, join me in praying these words from Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Hello, Southview. We're continuing on in this series we've titled Seeing Jesus as we look at Old Testament stories and study the way that they point us to God and his kingdom and how the characters foreshadow King Jesus. And the passage we'll look at today is in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. It is about one of the most well-known of Israel's kings, King Solomon. But before we read our passage, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for today. We thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that you would cause me to share the things that you have for your people, and that you would cause my brothers and sisters to hear you clearly in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so from the beginning of chapter 3, we start finding out a little bit more about Solomon. And it helps us to understand why the particular passage that we're studying is important. And it sets it up as evidence for God's blessing on Solomon. So let's start there at the beginning of chapter 3. And we see in verses 4 through 15 that the narrator gets us right into the sleeping brain of Solomon. Because Solomon is having a dream in which God speaks to him and asks him, what shall I give you? 
Well, in some ways, this question feels as if God is offering Solomon a blank check. It strikes me as more of a test of Solomon's fitness for kingship. After all, in verse 3, there is a significant amount of ambivalence about Solomon, saying Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. We also read in the first verse that he formed a marriage alliance with Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David. Now, this seems important, especially considering all the warning God gives the people of Israel about marrying the daughters of foreign nations. So in light of these red flags, the reader should understandably be wondering if Solomon is going to be a good king or not. And this is the classic struggle of Deuteronomic history, which delights in the glory brought to Israel by the monarchy, while at the same time condemns the apostasies of the kings that ruled it. So if God's offer is indeed a test, Solomon seems to pass with flying colors, because in his response to God, Solomon begins by acknowledging that he needs God's help to rule justly and to be able to discern what is good and evil. And it is not a coincidence that we find similar language to Genesis when Adam is given a choice regarding trusting God or seeking on his terms the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon, in contrast to Adam, chooses to trust God to give him wisdom and discernment to determine what is good and evil. Additionally, the reader is meant to understand that Solomon has chosen to care for his subject over personal wealth and glory. And God is so pleased with Solomon for asking for wisdom that he grants Solomon's request plus those things that he hadn't asked for. That means Solomon will receive unparalleled wisdom, but also unparalleled wealth and glory. So having established Solomon's fitness to be king and having received God's promise of wisdom and discernment, the narrative now turns to Solomon's public acts to give the reader evidence that God has indeed blessed him and that it wasn't all just a dream. So let's pick up the story there right after Solomon's dream. And again, it is found in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. And friends, remember, this is the word of God. So in verse 16, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, Behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, 
The living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no mean put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, the first thing that you may notice is that the king, who is certainly at the highest rung of the social ladder, is adjudicating a case before, between two women who are at the very bottom of the social ladder. This is certainly a different kind of king. Solomon's attention is very accessible. This is a king who cares for and brings justice to the least powerful in society. I'm going to say that again, and I want you to keep it in the back of your mind as we continue. This is a king who cares for and brings justice to the least powerful in society. That the women in our passage have little to no power, even within the narrative itself, is quite evident. I mean, look at verse 16. They're not presented as two mothers who come before the king seeking help. They're not even presented as two women. Instead, our narrator uses occupational labels and introduces them as two prostitutes. Why, you might ask? I believe that it's because such labels conjure up stereotypes of selfish, deceitful behavior. As feminist theologian Phyllis Bird notes, with highly selective and purposeful use of language, our narrator allows for a picture to be called up in the reader's mind and a range of meanings, attitudes, and associations on which the narrator may draw in constructing or relating the story to come into play. So by introducing these women in such a light with all the stereotypes that accompany such a label, the the maternal feelings revealed in one of them contrast with the expected behavior, which in turn highlights the wisdom of Solomon's actions. However, the same power dynamics that showcases Solomon's accessibility and wisdom also allows for a spectacle to be made of the two women. Yes, the story presents a clever riddle, but it's also a heartbreaking tale of cruelty, loss, and grief, and the varying human responses to that grief. That duality forces us to wrestle with the text. I know I wrestled with it. 
The power that Solomon holds in this moment is breathtaking. In many paintings of the story, like for example in this fresco by Raphael, guards dangle the baby upside down, clutching the infant's ankle with a sword in their other hand. This reminds us of the vulnerability of the people under Solomon's charge. Babies, prostitutes, widows, orphans, all of society's members, but especially the most defenseless, live and die at the will and whim of the king. Even as the story illustrates the depth of Solomon's wisdom, it reinforces to the reader that Solomon's personal character is so very important, which is why the first part of this chapter leaves us in tension. On the one hand, he seems to make some very questionable choices, but on the other, God seems to be pleased with him for some of the decisions that he is making. In any case, the last verse in this passage clearly tells us the outcome of his judgment. He was able to discern who the mother was and the people were in awe. Now, we're likely so familiar with the story that apart from a nod to Solomon's clever ruse, it may be hard to imagine why people would be in awe of this. But I want you to imagine the scene with me. The bickering of the two women over the disputed child. Solomon observing the back and forth of their argument like one would watch a tennis match. There is no evidence, only she said, she said reports. And the narrative makes it clear that there are no witnesses. And without witnesses, according to Mosaic law, a judge would not be able to decide between the mother's competing claims. And of course, the, re- the balanced, repetitious language is meant to indicate the difficulty of the dilemma that is presented. And then we have to consider the women themselves. Is the accusing woman trustworthy? By labeling her from the outset as a prostitute, her moral character is already under question. Curiously, she seems to address the king with the respect and deference due to his station. But is this politeness real or is this just a ruse to gain favor? I also wonder how it is that she knows the infant's cause of death if by her own admission she was sleeping when it happened. How and why does she provide so much detail about what happened, how it happened, and goes as far as saying the exact time that the living baby was replaced by the dead baby. It's clear that at best, she has come up with a plausible explanation for what may have happened and is presenting it as facts. At worst, she is straight up fabricating lies to cover what she herself has done. Now, I know that in our ESV translation, reading through leaves very little mystery in terms of who the mother actually is. As verse 27 tells us that the baby was given to the first woman, the accuser. But in the Hebrew and a number of other translations, it simply says, give her the baby. The reader then is left to ponder the dilemma and decide who the mother who cried out to spare the child really is. Was it the accuser or the accused? 
the purposeful ambiguity of the text is meant to challenge us and to lead us to the conclusion that the only way to judge rightly was through God's discernment. And it is, in fact, God's wisdom and discernment that leads Solomon to decide that the mother's desire to protect the child would be, in fact, greater than the desire to have possession of the child. And so the people were in awe of this decision because they realized that God's wisdom and discernment had been given to Solomon in such a way that he was able to bring to light things that were done in secret and to bring justice to those who desperately needed it. This was a different kind of king. This is a king who had God's wisdom and discernment to rule justly. And I'm going to say that again. This is a king who had God's wisdom and discernment. So we have then this narrative that is meant to give us proof that Solomon was a different kind of king. He was a king who displayed God's wisdom and discernment, not so that he could glorify himself, but rather so that he could care for and bring justice, especially to the least powerful in society. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that this series is about how the Old Testament stories reveal, point to, and foreshadow Jesus. And this passage and the rest of the story of Solomon shows us that he was, in fact, a type of Jesus. That is, Solomon and his kingdom foreshadow and shows us aspects of King Jesus and his kingdom. And of course, this makes a lot of sense, especially once we realize that the majority of Isaiah's well-known kingdom passages draw from and allude to aspects of Solomon's reign. But we also know that Solomon fell short. In the end, his choices lead him astray, leaving the people of Israel to continue to wait and to look for the one who would come. Now, there are many ways that Solomon did, in fact, foreshadow Jesus. But I want to focus on the two that we found in this passage that we've been studying today. So the question is, how does Solomon then point us to Jesus? Well, let's look at my first statement about Solomon as king. This is a king who cares for and brings justice to the least powerful in society. We've learned from the story that powerful King Solomon was not too high and mighty to bother with the affairs of those near the bottom of society. And I'm sure you can kind of see where I'm headed with this. Jesus, king of kings, equal to God, not only emptied himself for the sake of humanity, but also focused his earthly ministry on the sick, the poor, the marginalized and the outcasts. This, of course, doesn't mean that he didn't care for anyone else. We find in the gospel stories that Jesus dined with Pharisees and with rich tax collectors. But when Jesus declares himself to be the fulfillment of messianic prophecy, his focus is on the least powerful of society. In fact, let's read it. It's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. That's Luke, if I can find Luke. Luke, chapter 4, verses 
17 to 21. This is what it says. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And again, in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist was imprisoned, he sent a message to Jesus asking, are you the Messiah or should we be waiting for someone else? Instead of giving them a direct yes or no answer, Jesus points to the messianic signs and wonders that he had performed. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. King Jesus cares for and loves all. But those in most need of justice because they've been denied it by society or those in power have unrestricted access to the just king, the one who will judge everyone and bring to account everything that was done or left undone. This would undoubtedly be good news to the least powerful in society. And just as Solomon's reign brought justice and peace for the people of Israel, Jesus' ushering in of the kingdom of God is meant to bring justice and peace. The good news, the gospel message, is not just some spiritual truth about our sinful nature and that through Jesus we get a ticket to heaven. That is only one very limited dimension of it. Because the gospel is deeply tied to justice. It is rooted in the very character of God and is the outworking of that character, which is never less than just. In fact, Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck, writing on God's attributes, argues that in the Bible, God's justice is both retributive and reparative. That means it not only punishes evil doing, but it restores or seeks reparation for those who are victims of injustice. God stands against perverting the justice due to the poor and oppressing the alien, the widow, and the orphan. God raises them to a position of honor and well-being. Doing justice with an eye to the needy becomes an act also of grace and mercy. Jesus, the king who cares for and brings justice to the widow and the orphan, the poor and the sick, the marginalized and the oppressed. King Solomon's approach to justice in Israel points us to the king who will bring justice, true justice, to all of humanity regardless of status or power. And then we have the second declaration I made about Solomon. This is a king who had God's wisdom and discernment. There is no doubt that Solomon was wise. When the king, queen of Sheba came to investigate the reports she'd heard about Solomon's witness, she exclaimed that they did not do him justice. She also said that his servants and the people of Israel 
were blessed to hear his wisdom and to have him execute justice and righteousness for his people. Now, this wasn't just any kind of wisdom. Solomon's dream is meant to assure readers that this comes from God. And indeed, our passage today ends with the people of Israel recognizing that he had wisdom from God. But let's look at Jesus' own words regarding wisdom in Luke chapter 11, verse 31. He says this, The queen of the south, referring to Queen Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. While Solomon undoubtedly had wisdom from God, as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is the wisdom of God. And you must understand that in Scripture, wisdom is usually understood as the ability to see reality as God does, enabling people to apply knowledge in a way that pleases him. Who then could compare in wisdom to Jesus? And look at what Isaiah writes about the Messiah in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. This is what it says, verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide dispute by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Here in this passage, Isaiah is not only looking forward and prophesying about the coming king, but he's also pointing back to Solomon and the very passage that we've been studying today. Isaiah is telling us that those aspects of Solomon would be present in the Messiah. And as we've seen, Solomon could not have made a fair judgment for the two women based on what he could see or hear. There was no evidence. There was no witness. Instead, due to the wisdom of God, he's able to devise a way to bring forth the love that was in her heart, and it becomes evidence to his righteous judgment. His wisdom and discernment foreshadows Jesus' wisdom and discernment. It should not surprise us then that the Gospels are full of accounts of Jesus' ability to discern hearts and minds of the people he encountered. Try as much as they might, the religious leaders were never able to trap Jesus through their ill-intended questions and challenges. And speaking of ill-intended challenges... I don't want you to miss this. Remember that account in which a woman is brought to Jesus for judgment? It's found in John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11. And in the story, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who has been caught in adultery and ask Jesus what should be done with her, pointing out that the law of Moses commanded them to stone such women. They really didn't care much about mercy or justice, their intention was to put Jesus in a catch-22 situation. While there are obvious differences, there are also striking parallels to Solomon's judgment. In one, a child's life is at stake. Here, 
a woman's life is at stake, and both seem, at least on the surface, to be unsolvable dilemmas. Now, you might be wondering, what is the dilemma in this woman's case? I mean, there was certainly evidence she had been caught red-handed in adultery. And that is true. But consider that the book of Psalm identifies truthfulness, gentleness, and righteousness as characteristics of the long-awaited Messiah. The religious leaders know this and had witnessed all three of these things in Jesus' lives. And so they were tormented by envy and sought a way to discredit him. So they try to trap Jesus into a choice between mercy and justice, between righteousness and gentleness. The law was clear. So if Jesus suggests mercy, they would be able to discredit him. If Jesus suggests following the law, following justice, then people would see him as unkind or unmerciful and therefore would lose support of the people. Of course, Jesus' response like Solomon's, is completely unexpected. He doesn't speak against the law, nor did he affirm that she should not be stoned. Instead, he puts it back on the women's accusers. With this, the guilt in their own hearts is exposed. So the choice is on them to either let this woman go or, together with her, receive the penalty for breaking Moses' law. Solomon and Jesus both come up with very clever ways of handling the situation. The child is spared by the compassion of the mother. The woman is spared by the guilt of the accusers. In both cases, wisdom and discernment bring about righteous and merciful judgment. And this is so important. The wisdom of God ultimately results in righteous and merciful judgment. And if this sounds familiar... Well, it should. This is an important dimension of the good news. If the one who is to judge all of humanity is only just, then the only thing left for us is fear of condemnation. If the one who is going to judge all humanity is only merciful, then he is unjust. But through King Jesus, the wisdom of God, both are satisfied and we have hope and assurance of salvation through faith. Okay, so we can clearly see pictures of Jesus in Solomon. But what does this mean for us today? Well, I want to suggest that we should be looking at the results of the wisdom of God at work in our lives. We should be asking, can others see King Jesus in our lives? Just as Solomon's reign was unique because of the wisdom of God And as Christ embodied the fullness of the wisdom of God in the inbreaking kingdom of God, so we, all those who are in Christ, become royal priesthood who receive the Holy Spirit so that we are transformed according to the wisdom of God. And what for? To make manifest the kingdom of God here, now. We pray, as James 1, 5 indicates, We ask for wisdom in faith so that we can change the world around us that is so desperately in need of justice and mercy. Because in doing justice, in loving mercy, in walking humbly with God, we, like Solomon, even if imperfectly, point to King Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
We thank you for your word and how it reveals you to us and who King Jesus is. We thank you for your wisdom and that through it, you bring righteousness and mercy to the world. Father, we, like Solomon, want to point to you and we want to make manifest the kingdom of God here and now. So help us in Jesus' name, amen. And now, please receive these words of benediction, words of blessing from Philippians 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with wisdom and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Amen.